This episode is sponsored by Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenums might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenums, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locums trends from your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like what is locum tenums, to more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have first-hand locums experience. LocumStory.com is a perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and you are tuned in to yet another episode. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, welcome. We typically have weekly episodes where we go over different high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and now we have a couple of other additions this year. We have our Citation Classics, which you, which you all can check out. And then we also have our OITE slash our board review series, which we released a couple episodes during the week. And we will be re- releasing more as OITE exams come closer. But this episode is a little bit different. Uh, I feel like I've been saying that a lot lately, but this really is. This is a great episode, and we talk a little bit more on the lifestyle side of things or the business side of things that we don't necessarily talk about too often because we always talk about fractures and fixing things, which is also very important. Uh, But for today's topic, we have Dr. Alfred Atanda Jr., who is going to talk to us a little bit more about physician well-being. We're going to talk about burnout where we are going to talk about the different types of practice contracts things to think about when you're looking at different contracts or when you're considering getting a job in your fourth fifth year of uh, residency or maybe in your fellowship year what are some of the things that you want to look for we also talk about income and creating income as a doctor and making passive income and we talk about a lot of stuff so this is actually divided into a two part series so we'll have the first episode today and then we'll have the next episode the next parts of the episode being released next week now a little bit more about dr tonda he is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at the alfred l dupont hospital for children in wilmington delaware where he serves as the chief of the center of sports medicine the director of clinician well-being and he is also an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at the sydney kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. He graduated from medical school at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He completed his residency at the University of Chicago Medical Center, and he completed fellowships in pediatric orthopedic surgery at Alfred L. DuPont Hospital for Children and in sports medicine at the Rothman Institute at Thomas Jefferson University. He also has some entrepreneurial type endeavors he is the creator of sports link md which we'll talk a little bit more about when we get to it in our podcast i think it's actually in the second part and also he is a motivational speaker he speaks at numerous places he speaks at different wellness spas resorts and he's actually in the planning phases of developing a physician well-being podcast for the orthopedic surgery educational platform orthobullets which is also a great platform to go and look and learn things so you know this is again great episode i hope you all really enjoy it and without further ado let's go ahead and get into today's episode (laughs) 
You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Cody. I, I really appreciate you sharing your time with me today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, you know, talking about a variety of things. Again, this is a little bit different than our normal um, so-called podcast where we talk about a specific orthopedic topic, but this is also a very important orthopedic surgery topic, a life topic, and many of them. Um, so I'm really looking forward to today. And what I think I'd just kind of like to start to do is just kind of give the people just a little bit of background about kind of just Dr. Rotondo, where you're from, kind of what you grew up like, you know, and kind of just the household you grew up in. Yeah. So that's kind of a loaded question, but I'll do, <laughs> uh, give you the short and sweet version. So my family is originally from Ghana in uh, West Africa, and I'm the youngest of seven kids, um, four boys and three girls. Um, so in, in, in any immigrant household, as you can imagine, education was key. That's pretty much why my parents came here. That's what they wanted for their kids. Um, and they really, you know, expected us to work hard and achieve academically. So that was pretty much most of the focus of my upbringing, you know, also being from Ghana, we all played soccer. That's a big part of our lives. Um, and as you know, as, as an orthopedic person, um, there's a long road of education and that fit right in hand with, you know, the values and the morals of my family. We're from the East Coast. I was raised uh, in New Jersey, right outside of Atlantic City at the beach. Um, and I did my schooling here on the East Coast and um, did my ortho residency at University of Chicago, and then a couple fellowships back in the East Coast. And now I am uh, the director of sports medicine um, at DuPont Children's Hospital in Wilmington, also where I serve as the uh, director of clinician well-being, which is basically like a well-being officer, but it's specifically for the physicians. Um, we have a well-being officer for all associates, but I'm only in charge of like physicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I know what you mean. Um, I also have, you know, I'm a son of immigrants here to the U.S. and for a very long time was the youngest of many, many siblings, more than double the siblings you have, I have, I have as well. Um, so, you know, how many siblings do you have? So I have, I was the youngest out of 16 for most of my life. And now I have a little sister. <laughs> Whoa. So, yeah. Both of my parents are from the Caribbean. And, oh, where uh, in the Caribbean? New York. My dad is from Jamaica and my mom is from a small island called Grenada. Oh, I definitely know Grenada. Wow. 16. Yeah. A lot, <laughs> I must say. And and uh, you, you mentioned a couple of things. So, you, you know, you did most of your training in the East Coast and, you know, as far as residency and fellowship, but just kind of taking a step back, what was the story behind choosing orthopedics as a specialty, you know, as a whole, kind of what brought you into that? And then we can kind of go dive a little bit deeper here in a second. Yeah. So, you know, piggybacking on kind of what I mentioned before, um, and you may be able to relate to this. You know, being in my particular family situation, um, even before thinking about orthopedics, I have to talk about how I even got into medicine. So, um, you know, my six older siblings all, you know, they went to college, they went to graduate school, they all had, you know, terminal degrees, whether they be PhDs, 
MDs, you know, um, JD. Um, actually, no, there are no MDs. PhDs, JD, and an MBA. Um, I'm the first physician, but uh, you know, growing up, I I really just wanted to belong in my family. You know, I did not want to do anything that rocked the boat or stray too off course. And you know, my parents had worked hard and and sacrificed a lot for me to have the little that I had. Um, and I really wanted them to be proud of me, um, to be quite honest. And that was always a very, very big thing, even to this day, you know, I'm 43 years old, but you know, I'm still the baby and they still call me. Right. So I still want their approval, you know, and it means a lot to me. So I knew as a kid who was into science and, you know, I always liked learning and, you know, just being very academically rigorous, it just was a no brainer that becoming a physician would have kind of fit very well for me and what I wanted for myself. Um, and that's kind of why I went into medicine just because I always liked the human body and science and wanted to push myself academically. Um, and then once I got to medical school, um, you know, I really always gravitated towards, um, procedures. Um, I always loved working with my hands. I was always very kind of neurotic and task oriented as a pre-med and, and medical student. So surgery just lent itself very, very well to just the way my brain worked and the way I learned and the way I performed. Um, and to be honest, when I was a senior in high school, um, I had watched a video uh, about an orthopedic surgeon who went down to actually somewhere in the Caribbean. I think it was Haiti and he was doing like relief work. And I didn't know it at the time, but now I know he was doing corrective osteotomies. I think the kids had Blount's disease and he was putting on Elicerol frames. And I was a 17 year old high school senior in my anatomy class. And I saw this video and I was just hooked because, you know, he had, saws and hammers and chisels and mallets and all sorts of stuff, screws. And at that point, even before I went even into college, I was like, wow, you know, being an orthopedic surgeon could be pretty cool. So once I kind of settled on medicine and going to medical school, I always had that in the back of my mind. And then when I actually went through the rotations, like I said before, surgery just always called out to me and reached out to me. And I don't know. It was kind of a no brainer to do orthopedics, just given my early love that I had seen in in anatomy class with that video, given my propensity to like science, given my, you know, love of working with my hands and tools, it all just kind of gelled together um, and made a whole lot of sense uh, for me to go into orthopedics. And, and from seeing, you know, this video of these Lissarov frames being put on, you know, on these patients in 80 to, you know, now doing kind of pediatric slash sports, what made you, I guess, what was the story behind choosing those specialties out of all of the different, you know, specialties there are within orthopedics? Yeah. Um, you know, to be, to be quite frank, um, when I went into residency, I didn't, I didn't really know what specific field I wanted to do. Um, I always kind of thought about sports because, you know, I come from a big soccer family and I'd always played sports. Um, but what really did it for me is when I was a second year, uh, my first rotation was foot and ankle. And uh, I remember, you know, as a, as a two, it's kind of a big shock to your system that, you know, that 
July 1st summer of, of, of being a two and just kind of acclimating to real orthopedic residency, I had a really tough time. Um, it was, I felt overwhelmed. I felt um, kind of out of place. I felt like I wasn't doing a good job. Um, you know, all the things that us physicians, specifically trainees feel and experience. And I just remember it not being a very pleasant experience because I, I just kind of felt like a fish out of water. And it took me a couple of months to get used to things and get used to the hierarchy of our department and our attendings and our chiefs. And then when I finished that rotation and I settled and I did PEDS next, I started that in October of my two year. And I just gelled very well with my chief and my attending at the time. And also I was just used to the flow of taking call and presenting a conference and just all the stuff that goes along with being a two. So I don't even know so much if it's actually pediatric orthopedic surgery that did it for me, or just the fact that that was like the first time in my residency in a year and a quarter or whatever that I like felt really good and just felt right. Really horrible. Um, so I just gravitated towards peds and to be quite honest, I, I like, peds like trauma and peds sports like i like doing pr procedures and just kind of you know normal healthy kids off the street with injuries um but the congenital aspect of peds it was always hard for me to grasp even to this day you know i i don't like treat club feed and hip dysplasia and scoliosis and all that stuff i, I pretty much you know just do sports and trauma so after i settled on peds um I, I knew I was going to do peds ortho and I was just, you know, I met with my current chairman now when I was a three, um, my, my ex-wife's dad is, was an endocrinologist at our current hospital and he introduced me to my current chairman. So way back then, and this was 2007, 2008, I was like, oh, you know, I, I'm from this area. I'll come back. I'll do peds and I'll just kind of focus on sports and trauma. And he was fine with that. And then after, you know, by the time I was like a four, four and a half or something like that, maybe even into my chief year, he, he had suggested that they wanted to really build a formal sports program and that I should actually do a sports fellowship, like a second fellowship. So I kind of just put together an application and scrambled around. And uh, so I did PEDS fellowship at my current hospital in Wilmington, Delaware. And then I did sports medicine at the Rothman Institute at um, Thomas, Thomas Jefferson in Philly. So um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, weird circuitous path of how I, I landed doing peed sports, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always upfront and, you know, given this whole journey of well being that I'm on, I always encourage people to just be honest with yourself and share your story because it's not always like you find on a, on a personal statement, you know, it's not all bread and butter like that. A lot of times there's a lot of random reasons why we do the things that we do. And, and for me, it was really just, my comfort level with myself and my ability and my knowledge. And I felt, I just happened to feel like I was coming into my own as a junior resident at that particular point in my training. And I just yeah. happened to be <laughs> on, on the pediatrics rotation. That's, that's honestly why I did it. So given where you're at now, you know, when, you know, say for example, second, third year residents or somebody a little bit younger, is trying to figure out what specialty they should choose. What are some tips or tricks that you normally tell people, or even when you're speaking about how to choose a specialty? Like, are there different factors that you consider, for example? Yeah, I can share some of my 
slides that I have here to help guide the discussion. Um, yeah, so these are this is geared more for um, medical students. Um, like when you're in ah, medical okay. school, how do you pick the right specialty to go in? But to be honest with you, it can work for orthopedic residents looking for a particular specialty. And you can see the first thing I always talk about is personality fit. Um, you know, whether it's geared for medical students thinking about which residency program to do or a resident thinking about which like fellowship to do, it's all about personality. And within orthopedics, you know, there's, you know, sports guys have one particular personality set, then there's trauma folks, there's hand people, tumor guys. I mean, everything is different. Um, whatever it is, you have to ensure that your particular personality fits well with that. You don't want to feel awkward or out of place or anything like that. Um, you have to think about the specialty content itself. So, you know, like I said, pediatric orthopedics in itself is a very congenital um, specialty. There's a lot of congenital problems and that didn't necessarily resonate with me. Um, but the sports aspect and the trauma aspect of pediatric resonated, pediatrics resonated very well with me. So it wouldn't have worked well to just do general peds orthopedics, not for me. Um, but I was able to, you know, be open and honest with myself about what I liked and then found like a niche within peds, you know, ped sports that worked well. So whatever it may be, you have to ensure that the content itself is something that you're going to be able to gravitate towards. You're going to be able to immerse yourself in. Um, and you have to really think that it's interesting role model influence. Um, this is also key. You have to really be able to find people within that specialty that you want to be like, you know, when you think about looking towards people in a specialty, if you see them and they're in their forties, fifties, sixties, and you can see them yourself being like that, or, or treating the kind of patients that they treat or doing the kind of research that they do. Um, I think that goes a long way because you have to want to be like the people that are in the field and they have to be role models that you want to have for yourself. Work-life balance is key. Um, this isn't something that I thought too much about, to be honest with you. In the early 2000s, coming up through training, it was all about just getting a job. You know, I, I, right. I didn't really focus on, oh, you know, I want to have kids and I want to keep playing soccer and bake with my sons and fly our drone and do this and do. I mean, I didn't consider that. I would just said, I need a job. I got a lot of debt. I've been spending my whole life to get to this area. But work-life balance is enormous. You know, and certain specialties lend themselves um, better to having a life outside of work. You know, if you're a sports attending, you know, and I, you know, I'm not really covering like a lot of teams formally. I don't do collegiate athletes. I don't do professional athletes. I'm just a regular sports person. So that works very well for me because I don't round all that much only just, you know, after I've been on call, uh, I don't almost never have inpatients, all my surgeries, 99% of them are outpatient procedures. So I really just go to the hospital, do my job and leave. Whereas the trauma folks and the spine folks and, you know, the tumor folks, I mean, their lives are a lot different because there's a lot more complexity to what they do. Their patients are a lot sicker, have a lot more demands. And that's something that, that you need to consider, you know, depending on if and how large of a family you want, um, or if you're going to get married or, or what have you, um, these are very, very important things. And, you know, like I said, when I was coming up, it wasn't even on the radar. It was like, you find your specialty, you find your job, 
and just hope that you have a regular life. Um, but now I think you should definitely keep that in consideration. Fellowship training options. Um, so again, uh, you know, this is kind of geared towards med students who are thinking about a specialty um, in general, but also for a resident. Um, obviously, if you're in a particular field, um, you have to make sure, you know, if you want to get subspecialty fellowship training, that they have fellowship options out there. Um, obviously, for most of what we do in orthopedics, pretty much there's lots and lots of fellowships in all facets of orthopedics. There's probably a lot of like sports fellowships and joints fellowships and, and spine fellowships compared to like tumor fellowships, let's say, or neuromuscular fellowships. So, you know, some of them are going to have a lot more opportunities and variety than others. Um, but you definitely want to consider that. And we also talk about future family plans. This kind of goes into work-life balance, specifically for our young female trainees, whether they be medical students, whether they be residents, um, you know, females, unfortunately, do tend to bear the brunt of a lot of um, childcare and, and family planning and things like that. Um, so I always talk to uh, our female colleagues to keep that in mind, you know, because certain types of jobs, certain practices, certain specialties um, are a little bit more family friendly. Um, than others. And then lastly, income expectations. So depending on how much debt you have or what kind of lifestyle you have or want to have, um, certain specialties in certain um, fields are going to make a little bit more. So for your medical students out there that may be listening in, thinking about orthopedics or maybe considering other surgical fields, um, you know, orthopedics tends to be compensated very well, fortunately for us um, and for the residents. Who are already in the in the field, you know. There's lots of different types of um, specialties. Obviously, most of them pay pretty well, um, but you know, spine and, and joints and and other things, sports tend to be a little bit more reimbursed than some of the other ones. Um, but it's always something to keep in the back of your mind. And a lot of times, talking about money and income can be thought of as taboo. Um, you know, it's kind of an unspoken um, topic, um, but it's but it's real and it impacts people's lives. And, you know, when you're tr out of training and you're practicing um, money is going to be something that you think about a lot because you have to make it, um, you have to spend it, you have to invest it, you have to do all kinds of stuff. So I definitely urge people to think about that. Yeah. And just looking at, you know, or just listening to you talk and looking at this list and, you know, I just recently mentioned a sports, so a sports fellowship and a lot of these uh, are definitely true, especially like the role model influences. You know, I'm looking at our our program director, our program chairman, and some of the people on our staff. I'm like, yeah, I want to be like them when I when I finish. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I kind of like their work life balance. I didn't necessarily think of the future family plans. That's one that is uh, a good thing to think about, especially. I mean, no matter what you know gender uh, you are, but that's definitely one to think about as well. And so, say for example, you know, we've we have decided our, our specialty, you know, you're a resident and, you know, you're going to go into joints, uh, you're a resident and you're going to go into joints. So whatever you're going to go into, how did you, or I guess, how did you pick where you were going to work at? You know, I guess you could say program or, you know, the, the, the job market, how did you decide, you know, what are you going to do private practice or be in a hospital or what kind of area you wanted to be in? Like what, how did you go through that in your head? Uh, yeah. So, um, oh, also I, I'm sorry for your previous question is, uh, always consider, 
again, for the medical students thinking about different residencies, the length of the residency is going to be very important in terms of whether it's a three-year residency like PEDS or internal medicine or something longer like orthopedics or neurosurgery or general surgery, but, um, and then how competitive you may be when you're applying. And this goes for residents also when you're trying to get a, a good fellowship. You have to be realistic about, you know, how competitive you are on paper. Um, so yeah, thinking about the right program and the right practice, um, you know, practices come in all different shapes and sizes, you know, um, basically, um, the size of the practice or program that you're going to work at, um, is, is going to be key. And you want to make sure that you have the kind of practice that, uh, is of a right size where you can flourish and you can grow and you can thrive. Some people, um, just like the training programs, some people thrive in, in smaller environments versus larger environments where they just kind of get lost and fly under the radar. But you have to ask yourself, you know, how do you work and grow and learn the best? And it's kind of like when you're thinking about where you go to college, right? Some people, like I went to a large state school, University of Virginia, where, you know, pre-med classes and organic chemistry of three, four, 500 kids, whereas in other smaller like liberal arts schools and, and private schools, you may have like 50 kids in your orgo class, you know? So that doesn't always work well for everybody. Everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. And it's the exact same thing um, for where you train and where you practice. You want to look at the demographics of where you're going to work or where you're going to train um, because these things are huge. You, you may want to be around people that look like you and, and have similar values to you and a similar upbringing to you. Uh, maybe even similar political views to you, um, or you may want the direct opposite. Maybe you were raised in an environment that was very homogenous and you are actually hungry for diversity and seeking diversity. And you want to be around a lot of people of different cultures and backgrounds. And there's no right or wrong answer here. It's all about just doing what's right for you and different programs and practices are definitely different. Um, you want to see, you know, if you're looking for somewhere to train versus somewhere to work, you want to see where this place is, because even though you're going to be working and training a lot, um, you're also going to spend a lot of time at home and outside of the hospital and outside of your practice. So if you're a big city person, um, you may want to gravitate towards working in a city versus if you're from a small town in rural Texas or Oklahoma or Arkansas or something like that then you may want to gravitate to a program or a training, you know, a practice or a training program that's in a smaller place, or you may want something different altogether. You may be from a small town, but you've always thought about living in the big city or training in the big city. So you always have to take that in consideration. And I'm only giving my perspective because these are all things that I never thought of, you know, I really <clears throat> just needed a job and I wanted it relatively close to where I was from. Um, and I was married at the time. And that was that, but I didn't really get down in the weeds of all these specifics. And, you know, I think these things definitely play a huge factor. Obviously private versus academic is the big fork in the road. Um, I was just kind of always thought of myself as just being an academician and, and doing research and maybe even applying for grants. So I, I actually never even considered private practice, to be honest with you. I just hmm. was at academic all the way. And I knew I was going to live up here in the Delaware Valley and I was doing PEDS, so it was really between DuPont and CHOP in Philadelphia, you know, and th those are my choices. Um, I didn't I didn't even think of all the other, you know, practices around here. 
but again, that's me. And it worked out well for me. I tend to be a nerdy academic guy, I like doing research, like being on the podium, presenting at conferences, writing textbooks, that sort of thing. Um, but you definitely have to see what works best for you. I mean, some people, they just want to do their job and go home. You know, they don't necessarily want to be all that heavily involved in teaching and being part of residency programs and doing research. So it's all about what works best for you. And then, you know, working in a hospital versus a health system, um, whether it's be somewhere you're going to be training or somewhere you're going to work. Um, if you work in one hospital, then, you know, you're going to go up and go to one hospital every day. But if you work with a larger health system that has lots of satellites and lots of surgery centers, just be prepared. You may be driving around to a lot of different places, you know, and again, if you have a family and young kids and different things outside of work, driving all over in like a 50, 60, 70 mile radius to different clinics and different surgery centers can be tough. Um, right. So you have to think about that. And again, I never thought about that. I was like, okay, well, here's the hospital and there you go. But guess what? As the hospital expanded and got bigger, we started creating satellite offices and we started building surgery centers. And now, you know, over the 12 years I've been there, I've gone to five, six, seven different areas, you know, to do surgery and do clinics. And you have to take that into consideration. Even when you start, it may literally just be one place, but over time, you may find yourself going to lots of places. And, you know, another thing that we add to that is when you work at a lot of different places, you have to be credentialed at all of those. Places. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's a, oh, it's a yeah. lot of paperwork, right? It's a lot of paperwork. Yeah, and again, you don't, you don't really think of it. You're like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to be doing cases here, cases there, be at all these surgery centers and build up my practice. Yeah, it'll be great. True, but it comes. How, Go ahead. No, I was going to ask, how long does that take? Because, you know, in my head, I just picture like a stack of papers. But, I mean, how long? Is this like a, we had to go through training at each separate hospital? Obviously, I, I haven't been through this besides residency, but is that like a long ordeal? Yeah, I mean, it, it can be um, if they're stri strictly affiliated with your hospital, like a you know, direct offshoot of your own hospital, then it's not too bad. You may just have to do a little bit of paperwork, but sometimes you may work at a satellite surgery center that's owned by somebody else that's not your hospital or a clinic, you know, that you share with, with other health systems. And then those tend to get a little tricky because then you have to do computer-based training. Sometimes there's different EHRs at those places. You have to get training for that. Uh, you have to maintain your credentialing. This is outside of like your state license and your DEA license. This is just for the credentials and the license to work in that place. And you have to apply for privileges. Somebody has to sign off on that. Sometimes you have to be interviewed um, by like a credentialing committee at the place. And if it's one or two places, that's one thing, but you can imagine when you work at eight, nine, 10 different places, um, it can be very tough. And, you know, even for me, sometimes there's hospitals that they just want us to be available to be able to go and treat kids there. Cause it's like an adult hospital and it's nearby, but every now and again, they see kids. So if you're on call, you may have to go there and operate and do stuff, but you may do that once every three or four years, <laughs> But you right. still have to maintain your license there, your credentials there. You have to pay, you know, to, to be onboarded those places. I was just going to ask the opposite. Yeah. I was just going to ask if you get compensated to do all these credentialing, but you do. So you have to pay. Yeah. <laughs> but the, I mean, the department will reimburse, they reimburse you. Oh, okay. But up front, I mean, you still have to pay initially and you have right. to submit the reimbursement. The point is, it's not as easy as it looks to work at a lot of different places. And it does have benefits in terms of growing your practice and getting your name out there 100%. But the one thing that, you know, I try to teach everybody as I do well-being discussions is that everything comes at a cost. You know, this is America. There are no free lunches. So if you're going to 
be the, the, the person and you have this new practice and you're the, the only show in town and you're doing all this stuff and covering teams and you're all over the place. There's work that has to be done usually by you. Um, you may have staff support and administrative help, but a lot of it is paperwork that you just need to do. And I'm not saying this to discourage anybody. I'm just saying you should just be aware. You should know. That, that's what comes with the, with the territory. And that's like the biggest take home message for me and all of the well-being work that I've done is we are not adequately prepared to live our lives as orthopedic surgeons. You know, we are prepared to make hospitals money. You know, we are prepared to see patients and to do surgeries and we are thoroughly prepared and well-trained to do that. But there is an enormous amount of stuff that goes along with that, that you just have to kind of fend for yourself. So the first part of all of that is just spreading the good word, making sure everybody's aware, pointing people in the right direction for appropriate resources and just getting your mind in that appropriate headspace of, okay, yeah, I've got this ortho thing down pat and, you know, I'm learning and I'm learning my craft and my trade, but I have a few neurons in my brain thinking about all of those other things that they'll hit you someday. And it's usually all at once when you start your practice as a new surgeon. So we're just trying to do the good work to make it not so shocking um, as to when a lot of the trainees and young docs get to where they need to be. And, And that being said, you know, that we, that we are being, you know, trained to, you know, to work for these different hospitals, et cetera, mm-hmm. are, and, you know, a lot of programs, at least they try to at least have one grand rounds or something in there a year to talk about like contracts and things to be on the lookout for when you're signing one, because again, we're not, we don't have like MBAs or things of that sort. Right. So from your experience, when you're looking at the contract side of things, you know, and then this is probably more geared towards our residents or fellows, uh, what are some of the things that, that we should know for you know we've had a couple of podcasts before we've kind of brushed or talked about some certain topics but what are the things that we should know for on on the contracts like contracts 101 you know for residents yeah so contract negotiation is something that i absolutely positively never did when i started my job i um had trained you know for 15 years after high school had amassed debt. Um, I had one child. I was married at the time and I needed to work. And my chairman could have put anything in front of me and I would have signed it. Um, our hospital is a bit loose in terms of contract. I think my contract was like a page long. Um, I read it in like three minutes. I signed it and I gave it back. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend that now <laughs> specifically <laughs> right. if you're going the, the private practice route too. Um, There's a lot of nuances. So first and foremost, I would always lean on somebody who is smarter in legalese and legal jargon than you are and have their thoughts and input. You know, it can be expensive, you know, a couple hundred bucks to to hire a lawyer to read through it, but it's a very, very good investment just so they can be an objective person and bounce ideas off of you and you off of them to figure out, to make sure, you know, to make sure everything is, is up to snuff and it's in your best interest. You definitely want to think about the scope of work. You know, when I signed up, I was like, well, um, I'll see patients and I'll do surgery. That was it. You know, it wasn't even delineated. Um, but you want to know, like, how many days a week are you going to be doing surgery? How many days a week are you going to be doing clinic? Where are you going to be doing clinic? Um, how much of it? And um, 
because once you're already in your practice and the thing about contracts is that it's hard to negotiate things once you've already started working. So you want to get everything in that contract up front. So scope of work is obviously huge. You want to know what you're doing. Pay is big. Um, it's not the end all be all, but believe it or not, specifically with a lot of the well-being work we do, but it's something that people talk about. Um, so you want to make sure that you are being paid however much you think you deserve. Signing bonus, this is key because there's a big difference between a signing bonus and an advance. And when I started my practice, um, I assumed I was getting a signing bonus because they gave you a certain amount of money up front when you signed, and then they gave you a certain amount of money when you started. But now looking back, that was more of an advance because a bonus is what that is, right? If you're, if you're granted, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and you get a bonus, then you get $110,000 or whatever your signing bonus is. What happened right. to me was that amount of money that I received was taken from my salary. So it was, just, oh, okay. it was just a salary yeah. that I was, you know, too little early. and they gave me some of it before I started my job. And I didn't realize that I was like, oh, oh, you know, I got a job. I got a signing bonus, you know, let's go out and celebrate. But in actuality, it was just it's the same money. <laughs> so you just okay. want to make sure um, that it's not an advance. And, and, um, and real quick on that, how, I've heard some people getting their signing bonus like, you know, a year early before they start their job or, you know, their job will say they might pay some money on their like student loans or things of that right. sort. Is that is that typically like that's normal, you know, to get this like a year in advance and things of that sort? Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things, because once you accept that bonus, then you're kind of locked in, you know, like you can't really especially if they give it so far in advance. A lot of practices do that to keep you on the hook because if you just sign a contract and just sign it but you never like work or get any money you can actually back out of it okay. whereas if they give you money up front which entices young people who don't have money then they've kind of locked you in because if you don't work for them then you have to give all that money back so you, it just keeps you kind of reeling you in a little bit so anywhere between a like couple months before up to a year i've heard um, mine was like two or three months before i started and then I got the rest when I started. Um, but it's it's something that they do basically to lock people in, to get them interested, um, to entice them um, to want to sign. Um, <clears throat> when we talk about moonlighting, this is also key, um, especially with people doing a lot of locums work. Um, I do a lot of, not necessarily locums, but I do a lot of side hustle consulting stuff uh, on the side on my own time. And you want to make sure that your, com your company, your practice, whoever is okay with that. You want to make sure that they don't have any problems against that. You want to make sure they don't prevent you from doing that. Luckily for me, there was nothing like that put into my contract. So I'm, I'm free to do it as long as I disclose it and, you know, tell my chair and the compliance office. Uh, but sometimes people are unable to do that. So you want to make sure if it's something that you think you may want to do to get some supplemental income, that you get that written in and make it delineated as to what you're going to be doing. Like I don't operate on people on the side, but you know, I do second opinion work. I do provider to provider consultations. I do telemedicine um, consulting and different things. So if they do say you can't moonlight, then you want to make sure that they spell it out specifically what you can and can't do. Ah, okay. Same with a non-compete clause. Um, a lot of practices have these uh, for me personally, you know, our hospital is, probably about 50 miles away from CHOP. Um, so if they, if my hospital said I can't work within, you know, 
a 50 or 60 mile radius, then chop is the only other play. I'd have to go 120 something miles away to Baltimore to go to Hopkins. So, you know, you want to make sure that those non-compete clauses, you want to know the radius. And also some of our, is that from that radius of mileage? Is that from the main hospital? Is it from, or is it from all the satellites? Because we have satellites that spread 30, 40, 50 miles from the hospital. So is it 50 miles from any type of Nemours DuPont establishment or just the main hospital? Um, because that'll be a big thing. Because we, I mean, if you go downstate in Delaware, we have, you know, an ortho practice, it's 120 something miles away. So is it 50 miles from there, which would be 170 miles, which would take me, I don't even know where I would work. You might be in California somewhere. <laughs> you know what? I'll be going down to West Virginia because Baltimore is within that radius. So these are all, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty lucky and fortunate. I, Looking back, I was very, very naive because I never asked about any of this stuff. But these are all real things. Um, PTO is another big thing. Um, we, you know, we're surgeons. We, we're diehard. We push through anything. We don't want to show up talking about, you know, how much time am I going to get off? But that's a real thing, especially if you have a family, significant other, partners, whatever, kids. You you have to ensure what kind of time off you're going to have, and maybe an awkward discussion. But you have to know how many days a year you're going to have to yourself. Um, what's a what's a reasonable time amount of time off? Are we talking three weeks? Like is four weeks a year like the norm? Is yeah eight weeks? You know, like what's I would year? say anywhere between four and eight weeks is standard. Okay. Probably closer to four ish six weeks. Um, luckily for us in academic centers, you have academic days and allowances also which okay. a lot of people roll that into vacation, right? You go away. We just had our big meeting. Um, Pete's ortho meeting was in Vancouver last week. You know, I know a lot of people took their families out there, you know, it's far and, you know, you, you present for a day or two and you hang out with your family for a day or two. So you can kind of get some of that into there, but you definitely want to know what kind of time off. And I would say reasonable is about four to six weeks. I know less than four. I mean, less than four is, is tough, but right. that's what most places are at. Maternity and paternity leave. This is huge. Um, one thing to understand that, you know, uh, at least for me personally. So when I had my first son, I was a fellow. And um, when you're a fellow, um, all you have to do is really just check in with your co-fellows to make sure everything is covered and everything is done. So I took about a week or maybe even a little more off for my first son. And then I had my second son and I was an attending at this point. And as you can imagine, you know, if a resident or a fellow doesn't show up, the other residents and fellows just do their work. If I don't show up as an attending, the hospital and the department lose money. So there's mm-hmm. a much different Very discussion. True. So when, I, and, and guess what? I didn't realize that because I was like, oh, well, I was a fellow here and I took a whole week off. I am having another kid. They're like, well, uh, guess what? You can't just take time off. You know, you have to ask for it six weeks in advance and it has to be approved and this and that. My second son was born July 4th, which was a Thursday. Um, I was in the OR the next day doing cases, mm. you know, because some, I was the only I was the only sports surgeon back then. I was new two years in the practice, just trying to stay afloat. There was no way I was going to like, oh, yeah, I'm taking a week off, you know, mostly because of the culture, but because I had to be there. Um, which is fine. You just have to know that ahead of time. And it was a little bit of a shock because I assumed I'd have more time off, but I didn't. Um, so definitely, even for the guys out there, um, get that uh, parent parental leave ironed out. Obviously, for the females, um, that's a little bit more um, 
standard to have several weeks off. But again, you want to get that ironed out as to how much time you're going to have. Um, we talk about <clears throat> RVUs versus collections versus salaries. So how are you going to make money? Is it going just to be your salary? Is it going to be how much you're collecting? Is it going to be relative value units? Is it going to be a combination of the two? Where I work specifically, we have a baseline salary and then we can get you know compensation. Uh, we have a bonus compensation plan depending on our RVUs and how much work we're doing. So there is a little bit of an incentive um, you know, to kind of push yourself and do a bit more. Um, it's nowhere near as aggressive as it is in a lot of um, private practice institutions where the salary is actually low, but the potential and your ceiling of how much you can make bonus-wise is really, really high if you push yourself. Um, and you have to ask yourself what kind of environment you want to be in. You know, some people want that ceiling to be real high, where if they bust their hump, they can make, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred thousand, a million dollars a year, you know, um, for right. me personally, um, I, I don't want to make anywhere near that much, um, but it's nice because I, I get paid well and it's, it's salary based. So I show up, I do my job, I take care of patients and, you know, there's good security that, you know, that you're going to be paid, um, well, and that makes me feel good. Um, I'm so not, go ahead. No, one question. So, so during the times of COVID, those with salaries, we're still pretty much okay, but if you're like RVU based or revenue, and then you had based, a problem. Then it was yeah. an issue. So it's an issue. It's so it's it's kind of like this. If if you're, um, you know, it's I don't know how to put it. So it's it's kind of like looking at a a jet ski versus a cruise ship. So a cruise ship is is kind of like getting paid salary. It's it's stable. It's solid. It's dependable. It can weather any storm. Um, but you don't have a lot of nimbleness and flexibility, right? To, to turn a cruise ship like one degree to the left probably takes, you know, hundreds of gallons of fuel and all this stuff. Whereas a jet ski is quick, it's fast, it's nimble, it changes with the times. It can be fast, it can be sleek, you can do all sorts of stuff with it. And it has a lot of potential, but it's not very stable. Meaning if you hit like a log or something, boom, you're done, you know? So the idea, I know that's a silly analogy, but the idea- No, I was going to say that's a good analogy. Yeah, the idea with salary is that it's always there. You know, yeah. um, but if you get paid a good salary and, and that's the mainstay of what you're making, you're not really don't expect to make one, two, three million dollars a year. Um, but you're always going to have that good salary, whereas the, the reverse, if it's purely RVU based and collections based, you have a huge ceiling and you can make a lot of money if you work, you know, 24 hours a day. But if something happens like you can't work because you're sick for three weeks or COVID hits or, you know, whatever, then yeah, I mean, even if you like have a baby and you stay home for two weeks, that's two weeks less of salary. You know, if it's if it's yeah. all eat what you kill, you're gonna have to work all the time. You know, and that's has its pluses and minuses. And at the end of the day, you just have to figure out what works best for you. Um, and you just have to think about it because these are all things. This is like a laundry list of things that I wish I had thought about when I was signing my contract. Um, and maybe other, you know, maybe some of the trainees out there are much better than I was and, and are already thinking about these things and are already asking people. But if you're anything like me, you would sign on any dotted line uh, <laughs> as, as long as there's some pay behind it. Dollar dollar bill. And I, and I must say, I have never been on a cruise ship, but I have ridden a jet ski before. I don't know what that means or anything, but. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's funny. Same exact thing. I've never been on a cruise ship, but I have ridden a jet ski. It's thrilling. <laughs> And then it's exciting and, until you fall off. So, until you fall, yep. Um, metrics. This is another big thing. So how are you going to be 
evaluated as a physician and a surgeon. How are you, if I came up to you and said, hey, are you doing a good job? Are you a good surgeon? Are you a good physician? Are you, you know, a good teacher? Like what are the metrics that your department and your hospital are going to use to make sure you're doing a good job or not? Um, and you have to understand those things. Is it the number of cases that you're doing? Is it the number of patients you see? Is it patient satisfaction scores? Is it, you know, evaluations that you get from residents? You want to know how you're going to be evaluated so you can work on the different aspects of that um, as you need to. Scribes, PAs, APNs, you know, we call them mid-levels. Uh, some people don't like that term. We call them physician extenders. Some people don't like that term. But basically, these are the people that are going to help you do the work that you need to do. And it's nice uh, because when you get paraded around and, and you interview with different practices, then you see all these people doing all this stuff and they entice you to come. And then you come and you're a brand new surgeon and you're at the bottom of the totem pole and none of those people are available to you. <laughs> so you see all right. these scribes and PAs walking around, but they all work for the senior surgeons. So having them around is one thing, but you need to ensure that you will have access to them. And, you know, there's not an unlimited supply of those kind of folks. And oftentimes it's the more established people with the bigger practices and, and, and higher notoriety and, and, and bigger visibility who get, you know, it's a very paradoxical thing, right? So the people who are most established who are, who are most seasoned and can see patients and do surgery the quickest tend to have a lot of help and support. Whereas the people who are new and are just fledgling and drowning and just trying to figure out where the bathroom and the conference room are, those are the people in the first six months or a year go to clinic every day by themselves. And that's a very, very common theme. So you want to make sure if they have all these people, that's all well and good, but who are you going to have access to? Are you going to have a scribe? Are you going to have a scribe and a PA? Are you going to have a scribe and a PA and a resident? Are you going to have them every day? Or is it just one day a week or once a month? That all needs to be delineated. And that's what I add residents and fellows too. You go to these programs that have, you know, all these residents and fellows floating around and then you show up in your job um, and then they don't work with you because there's not enough of them and the senior people get them. And I can attest to that firsthand. I remember you know, being brand new and some days there just wasn't anybody with me and you just, you know, and you're still new, you're still trying to learn orthopedics, still trying to learn practice. So those are the kind of things that you definitely want to ask ahead of time. Research is key. Are you going to be able to do it? Are you going to be expected to do it? Are you going to have protected time to do it? Are you going to have time and funds and resources to go present your research? A lot of places you can only go to meetings if you actually have something to present there. You know, you may not have something to present, but you still want to go and learn and network and meet people. And sometimes you have to do that on your own dime, depending. Um, our organization is great because um, a lot of times, even if we're not presenting, we can still go and they encourage us to be academic. But not all places have that, specifically your private institutions. Same thing with conferences, whether it be educational conferences, academic conferences, who's able to go. Um, when you can go, how often you can go, how many of them you can go to in a year. Cause you think about like for us in pediatrics, you know, our big peds meeting was last week. There's 15 attendings in my practice. All 15 of us can't go to POSNA every year. I mean, somebody has to stay behind and take call and do work and see patients. How is that going to be delineated? Is it going to be like a schedule? Is it going to be on a rotating basis? Um, for us personally, it's like a rotating basis, which is good because it used to be in the old days that the senior people always went. And then the new, the newer people only went if they had something to present, but now it's a bit more fair. So you just want to make sure if you're academic or you're going to be going to a lot of conferences that that gets ironed out for you. And then last but not least, administrative time. One of the big things, um, 
uh, is admin time. So we have this, you may not realize it when you're training, but there's a huge imbalance between taking care of the patients that are in front of you, i.e. in clinic or in the operating room, and then taking care of the patients who aren't in front of you. All those patients at home who want their MRI results, who want their lab tests, who have questions for the doctor, who are upset about something. You need time to be able to handle those things. Because again, the hospital pays you money to see patients and to do procedures, whereas seeing patients and doing procedures generates a lot of things that you have to do that unfortunately you don't get paid to do. So you do that on your own time and you'll be in the EHR at night and on weekends, closing charts and responding to staff messages and responding to emails. So the more administrative time that you have baked into your contract, the better off you're going to be. Because once you start, it's going to be hard to ask for more of it. And that's a very, very common theme. Um, it's just, there's a lot of work that needs to be done that unfortunately is not reimbursable. Oh, I didn't so, even think about the admin time yeah. part of it. Yeah. Cause that, it, I mean, that could take hours. That can take hours. And you know, the, the culture of medicine, you're just kind of expected to do it on your own. You know, you're just kind of expected to do it on your own time. You're expected to, um, I don't know, just do it when you have free time. And like I said, if you have a family, if you have a partner, if you have a spouse, that's the kind of stuff you want to do with your free time. You don't necessarily want to be bringing home charts and calling moms back and looking at MRIs. And this is like the age old battle. I, I don't even know what kind of answer there is to this because there's so many things that you just have to do as a result of seeing patients and doing surgeries that are, that's not reimbursable that the hospital doesn't want you doing when you're at the hospital because they want you seeing patients and generating revenue. So it's, you know, you're going to have to, get some admin time. If you can get two half days a week, I think that's, that's good to start. Um, some places specifically for non-operative people, I know they have, they have 10 sessions a week, two sessions a day, five days. Like they don't have admin time when they start, they just do all that stuff early in the morning or late at night. So I think a reasonable amount of time, admin time is like one full day a week. If you can get that, obviously it'd be great to have more. Um, uh, but I think um, that's like a good amount. I hope you all are enjoying this episode so far. Stay tuned for part two to be released next week in exactly one week. This episode is sponsored by Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenums might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenums, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locums trends from your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like what is locum tenums, to more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have first-hand locums experience. Locumstory.com is a perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums.